to our podcast from the Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg. My co-presenter is Tara O'Connor, the Managing Director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting. And she joins us from London. The Ark Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have happened in the news, as well as ongoing topics of interest. Then, of course, our special guest. First, though, Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen. We are on our 10th podcast. That's quite a milestone. Uh, Did you ever imagine we would get this far? This started off as a COVID-19 project. Now it looks like we're here for good. I'm very surprised and I'm delighted about it. It's a new medium for me and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Let's spill the beans. We've got a great guest on the podcast, quite a coup. We've got Tuli Madonsela, the former public protector, the anti-corruption czar of South Africa. She'll be speaking to us later on. Should be a really interesting conversation, especially as we had John Kithongo, who did a similar job in Kenya just a few weeks back. Yes, I'd be very interested to hear uh, Professor Madonsela's take on the lockdown particularly as it's beginning to get challenged uh, both in the courts and in in the court of public opinion, as she said recently. Exactly. Well, let's go straight into a recap of some of the issues that have dominated the news. Burundi's president, Pierre Nkurunziza, has died at the age of 55. A government statement China says he died down at least 29 communities in Beijing, where officials confirmed dozens of new cases after seeing almost none in that area for nearly two months. Dozens of protesters in Kenya's capital Nairobi held peaceful demonstrations on Monday against police brutality. Marching through Madari slums, the demonstrators demanded justice for the victims of extrajudicial killings. Police reform today after meeting families of the victims of police violence and racial motivated shootings. He signed an executive order calling for a range of Justice Department guidelines and incentives for local police departments seeking what the order calls, quote, independent credentialing, end quote, to certify they meet higher standards for the use of force and de-escalation training. Well, picking up on one of those stories, we heard there Burundi and continuing speculation about the sudden death of former president Pierre Nkurunziza. He was just 55 and the official line is that he suffered a heart attack. Now, he was a controversial figure. I remember reporting from Burundi in 2015 during the violent clashes that followed the controversial change the constitution, which enabled him to run a third term. Fast forward then five years and right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, President Nkuruziza defies international warnings, holds elections in Burundi. His wife gets sent to Kenya for treatment. It's suspected that she has COVID-19. Then he dies. What we also know is that he's left behind a power struggle between the generals who backed the winner of the recent poll, Everis and Daishiema. But in constitutional terms, it's the president of the National Assembly, Pascal Nayabenda, Nahiza Nunkuruziza, loyalist, who should take over. So there have been crisis talks, as I talk to you now, Tara, to try and chart the way forward. A power struggle, as I say, and signs of potential infighting in the military. So it does look like Burundi is heading for some very unsettling times in the weeks and yes, months not, ahead. not great for that country, which has suffered quite a lot in, uh, in recent history. Um, there are developments uh, then on the uh, 
big developments in the anti-money laundering field uh, recently. Right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, while most attention has been focused elsewhere, the European Commission has placed Mauritius, Botswana, Ghana and Zimbabwe on its list of high-risk third countries that it deems to have deficiencies in their systems to protect against money laundering and terror financing. And what this means is that it'll be harder for businesses to use Mauritius and Botswana as bases from which to invest in the rest of the country, rest of the continent. For a country like Mauritius, it's particularly problematic because at least a quarter of its GDP is dependent on financial services. Can I ask a question? Should they not have seen this coming? Because basically this is about not having the correct regulations and procedures in place to satisfy the European Commission and also the United States um, that they are doing everything they can to not become a a safe haven for terrorist funds. Absolutely. And yes, the the global anti-money laundering watchdog has issued several warnings and the most recent of them being in February. Tara, thank you. You're listening to The Arc Insider with me, Karen Allen in Johannesburg and Tara O'Connor in London. Today, our podcast is focusing on the response across Africa to the coronavirus. Well, in South Africa, one of the fallouts of the coronavirus pandemic is much discussion about constitutionalism and whether after a relatively well-received initial response and swift lockdown, the government of Cyril Ramaphosa is using the pandemic to, as one commentator put it, brutalise South Africa's people and ride roughshod over the rights enshrined in our constitution. Well, we are truly thrilled to welcome onto the Ark Insider a woman who, despite having stepped down from public office, continues to try to hold power to account. She's proven to be a hard act to follow by her successor, who keeps clashing with the courts. I'm, of course, talking about Tuli Madonsela, the former public protector, or to put it simply, the anti-corruption czar, and the woman credited with helping to expose the state capture presided over by former President Jacob Zuma. Professor Tuli Madonsela, welcome to the Ark Insider. Thank you. You've got me here in Japan. You've got Tara in London. Hi, Tara. Hello, Tuli. Very, very good to meet you. And thank you for joining the Ark Insider. We have to confess that we do have a bit of a history. I do remember chasing you around the halls of Parliament and in and out of various cars and through various townships when you were still public protector. And you did step away from the office to go and talk to people on the street to try and explain why the kind of accountability that you were pushing for was so important. Do you miss it? Well, it's such an absolute pleasure to reconnect with you again, Karen. I was telling my partner the other day, he was asking, who's this Karen? And I said, oh, I've known her forever. She was one of the first few people who recognized the the potential of this office. Now, as I say, you're no longer holding public office. You're based at the University of Stellenbosch School of Law and you'd spent some time outside of the country at Harvard. Now back, you're still very vested, Tuli, aren't you, in keeping South Africa on the right track. And you've penned an open letter to Cyril Ramaphosa praising but also warning him to take care with his continued response to the pandemic here in South Africa. Do you think he's in real danger of squandering the goodwill of the past few 
few months and there has been a lot of goodwill as people have had to endure lockdown. Do you think he's actually verging on the autocratic? As a person, he is not autocratic. He's very consultative, very humble and and very purposive in, in his approach. But he's a leader of a team and, and as a team, I have no doubt about their good intentions. However, the means they often choose are not conducive to a climate that makes people collaborate or comply by consent as opposed to being bullied through the police or the army. Is it their tone or is it the actions? It's, it's a bit of both. Some of the ministers have not really come across as understanding that we are a team, Team South Africa, against a common enemy, coronavirus. If I compare the approach in New Zealand and our approach, the messaging from the president has been, let's do this, we're a team, but he is a member of a bigger team and the messaging should be consistent across the board. Minister of Police has been about he's going to donor people and when the army defeat people, there wasn't a very loud message from government that was saying this is wrong. Until, of course, the George Floyd matter, when government was confronted with the reality of uh, being loud in condemning the killing of George Floyd and other people in America, people then saying, what are the, about the people who have been killed here under your command and under your watch? Yeah, and then yeah. you Messaging. So that's the conduct itself. The regulations themselves, when we were all locked down, it made sense because it was it's unsafe to go out for 21 days. We're clearing up the atmosphere, we're trying to flatten the chaos. It was increased for another 14 days. Thereafter, everything just went pear shaped, primarily because who got unlocked or who got released the lockdown did not necessarily depend on rationality and reasonableness. It really depended on the strength of your negotiations. And therefore, groups that had real negotiations power got released earlier. And then those without negotiations power are only being released now. That would be the book, uh, the book industry, the geek industry, the real estate industry, the movie theatres, etc. And, and that has created a sense of alienation. Such a good observation. And I think we have seen that real kind of split in society. Do you think this sort of lack of team spirit is actually a betrayal of much wider splits within uh, the governing party, that there is the Securicats on one on one side and then there's Cyril Ramaphosa's lot on the other? It, it might be possible that they are are those who are adopting the apartheid style uh, securocrat approach. I don't think the president is alone on the other side because the loud voices are one or two. The rest of the ministers take the same tone as as president or they say nothing. And therefore it's not the president barricaded alone on the one side and and this other group on the other side. Again, I don't necessarily think it has to do with any ideological differences. I think it's untamed personalities. It's very diplomatic. Had you considered a, 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 a career in the diplomatic I don't think that would do well. <laughs> <laughs> Tara, do you want to come in? I did. I wondered, uh, Tuli, how much this is a necessary uh, part of re-establishing constitutionality. 
So we've actually seen your very welcome intervention, but we've also seen Trevor Manuel talking about the rationality that the lockdown uh, extension or the behaviour didn't uh, didn't match the requirement for rationality in the constitution. Well, it was unfortunate that somebody who's an insider like Trevor Manuel had to feel it was necessary to talk about the challenges in public, which speaks to the manner in which government has organized itself. Ordinarily, under the Disaster Management Act, the structure that should be making this decision is an intergovernmental committee, which would include members of the cabinet, members of provinces, and members from local government. It would also an advisory structure where people like Trevor Manuel would be part of that structure. The suggestion that most of the regulations are non-constitutional might be a little bit alarmist. A number of them are problematic from the point of view of rationality and equality. I would talk about Regulation 35, for example, which regulates funerals. Government has generously said uh, there can be as many as 50 people at a funeral. That's better than other governments. However, government has then prescribed who's allowed to get a permit should the funeral happen outside your district, which, of course, in a country like ours where there was apartheid spatial disparities, your relatives would be in different districts. And now only nuclear family members are allowed under the Act. What has happened is that people are just doing what they believe is right. They're ignoring the, the regulations. Then there's the geek industry which was totally shut. And if you look at the township economy, the rural economy, it's about people selling on the street, people selling in markets, and that was totally closed down. And people remember vividly and very sadly an image where a Gogo Damini was arrested and treated like a common thug for selling archer on the street. And for me personally, That was one of the images that prompted me to write that letter because my mom was arrested at the age of four when I was four for trading without a license and I was left with the newborn to look after. And I think it just touched a raw nerve for me about, firstly, the commercial activities that excluded. At that stage, you were not even allowed to sell warm food. And a lot of people sell maguinha and they sell, maguinha is fat cakes or fat cooks. Yes. Selling food at the past rank. And they make a living. It's a hand, a hand to mouth thing. And they couldn't do this. And it's not, wasn't so much the fact that the rule itself was unreasonable. It was the ruthlessness with which these rules are being enforced. For me, as a social justice advocate, there's also the blindness of these regulations to the reality of our economic exclusion. Government decided, for example, that a whole lot of things couldn't be bought from the stores, but could only be bought uh, via e-commerce. It forgot that we had not done what China had done. China took the Millennium Development Goals and now the Sustainable Development Goals and used them as a framework to create resilient rural economies. In South Africa, we hadn't done that. The same thing we did with education. We said everything could operate on the net. 
but forgetting again that only 30% of people in historically underprivileged communities do their business or learning on the internet. Such a good point, isn't it? Because we talked to Tara and I a few weeks ago about sort of digitization and it was extraordinary how the sort of COVID-19 pandemic has really shone a spotlight on that. And with countries like Kenya, which in many ways has got much more advanced payment system, everyone uses digital wallets, what have you, but they don't have a welfare state in the same way that South Africa has. South Africa's got a welfare state with SASA payments, but a limited number of people that can receive those payments digitally, hence we've seen sort of huge queues outside the offices. There's a real disconnect. But the, the Chinese model is very, very interesting. I guess it, it, the only worry is people people are getting increasingly concerned that um, with so much digitization, it's enabling uh, Big Brother to, to track where we are, what we're doing, what, re- what we're receiving, who we're interacting with, what we're buying, et cetera, et cetera. That's a reality. If it's not the state that is looking in at what we're doing, it is Facebook, Google. I don't know which one is the worst of the evils. People who intrude into our lives and invade our privacy for commercial purposes or the state. The difference between private business and the state for me is that at least the state is fluid. Not the same people are in Mm. government all the time. And therefore, even if they have access to your information at any given time, in a democracy like ours, they will be out and new people will be in. I'm not for the idea, of course, of a spying state. I'm just saying it seems to me that it's going to be part of the hazards of the fourth industrial revolution. Good point. Can we move on a little bit, Tuli? Um, Because during your time as public protector, you made a huge impact, as we said, in trying to chisel away at what's become known as as state capture. And and Tara and I were saying, actually, we hadn't heard that word before you came along. Now, for people not following what's been happening in South Africa, a commission of inquiry known as the Zondo Commission is still sitting. It's being closely followed to try to chisel away uh, at the extent of that alleged corruption, which um, you you revealed. So I wonder, Tuli, what do you make of the news recently that the former chair of South African Airways, Dudu Munyeni, who's a close friend of Jacob Zuma, indeed, she still chairs his foundation. She was declared a delinquent director by a high court. Now, we, we don't have time to go into the details of the case, but for people listening who are unfamiliar with it, she was effectively accused of making bad business decisions that cost the already embattled airline extremely dear. How significant do you think this case is? Uh, does it give you hope that a culture of cronyism can slowly come to an end? Well, firstly, I'm saddened by her misfortune. However, there has to be accountability. There was a lot of evidence suggesting that decisions at uh, SAA were not made with the business perspective. They were made on the basis of whims, and they were irrational. And in some instances, it would appear that they were specifically meant to benefit certain individuals that had captured the state apparatus for personal gains. And her being held to account is a sign of good governance, a sign of the rule of law. I I don't rejoice in her misfortune. However, we all have to face the consequences of decisions 
that we should have never taken. Can I ask you, Tuli, do you sit back in the morning over your cup of coffee and when you open the prep, the, your papers and have a smile on your face? I don't mean a satisfied smile for the fate of some of the people who've been brought before the courts, but a sense that, my goodness, I, I wouldn't have imagined that you know it would have come to this. Can you just describe a little bit what it's been like since you've stopped doing the job of public protector and you see these cases coming forward? When the cases do come forward and when there's evidence that there was wrongdoing, I do, as a human being, feel vindicated because the pushback made it appear as if I had a a personal vendetta Mm -hmm. uh, against certain people. And also people made a meal of my appointment to Stellenbosch University. Uh, I took this job because of my commitment to social justice and, and I do feel that part of the success of um, lack of accountability, of getting some of the state capturers to, to, to get away with lack of accountability had to do with the fact that they were able to leverage social injustice to get support from a, quite a huge section of the underprivileged communities in our yeah. country. But I see things moving forward. It is quite encouraging. Well, Tully, you mentioned George Floyd when we were talking a little earlier on and the tragic death of, of that American man um, at the hands of the police. Um, it does seem to have been a tipping point uh, and we've seen the call for police reform and the campaign to remove, for instance, Confederate flags from sporting events really move apace. Um, there seems to be so much unresolved history in the United States. Now, I guess my question is, you spent time you were living in the U.S. Um, when you were at Harvard. I know you were at an elite university, but I, I'm just wondering, did you get a sense, A, that there was a simmering institutional racism that was still very much at the heart of, of U.S. society? And the second part of my question is, you know, are there practical lessons? And I think it has reawakened the spirit of social justice that pervaded the world after the First World War. It is a pivotal moment for America. It is a pivotal moment for South Africa because it forced us to also reckon with Collins' causes murder. Just and remind us who Collins' causer was. Uh, Collins' causer is a South African who was killed at his own house, inside his own house, because the soldiers suspected that he may have been drinking unlawfully and he was beaten up. And the South African National Defence Force came up with a short report that reminded me of the Gupta Landing report that was brought to office as a public protector, which they did exactly what they did there, where it's really just a cover-up. I would say the George Floyd thing has forced the world to look at how, at the condemnation of blackness, at the the collective inability to grieve lives when there's an intersection of race and class, where we just move on as if nothing happened when somebody's not famous, they're not of a particular high class, and they also happen to be from a historically disadvantaged group. It's also though awakened, if you see what's happening in London and all over the world, it's also awakened just a conversation about the past. You know, we have actually in London has erupted um, in uh, in a debate about slavery and the truth about slavery that has I don't think in my lifetime I don't recall it ever ever happening. 
Exactly, Tara. I think people are saying we can't breathe metaphorically. For all these years, we've not been able to breathe because the system takes it as normal. The hierarchization of difference is taken as normal. I guess the question I want to ask you, Tuli, and we've asked it of all our guests, is that, you know, COVID-19 lockdown, you know, you're forced to slow down. And, and I can imagine slowing down for you is probably still quite a fast pace for most of us. But just what have you learned about yourself? What has this period of time taught you? I think the lockdown has has taught me that some of the things that I thought were indispensable and that I could never do without are actually dispensable, uh, like attending meetings physically. The other thing that the lockdown has made me realize is I love washing dishes because we have a... <laughs> I love it. Weird, actually. I never loved washing dishes because growing up as a girl and with a boy and being forced to wash dishes whilst your brother is playing in the field out there, I think I grew to resent dishes. And how we feel about things depends on the sentiment we attach to it. I found that. But now that I had to do dishes because they had to be done by someone. Nobody was asking me to do them, but somebody had to do them. I grew to like them. And in the end, some of my best ideas, some of my best research ideas and event ideas have come through those times when I was meditatively washing the dishes. Tuli, you need to be careful what you say, because before you know it, you'll be getting people knocking on your door of uh, offering uh, sponsorship and advertising contracts for washing up liquid. I can just see it now. <laughs> I, I'm afraid to say my response is the absolute opposite. I absolutely loathe washing dishes, and more so since, unfortunately, in lockdown, my washing machine has broken and I've been unable to get an engineer to come. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. It's been it's been really great talking to you, Tuli. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And thank you for gracing us with your presence on the Ark Insider and, and bearing up with some of the technical challenges that Zoom presents. And thank you very much, Tuli, as well, for, for coming on. It's been it's been a great honour to have you on the Ark Insider. And uh, I look forward to you joining us again. Well, thank you, guys. It, it's such a wonderful opportunity. It was lovely. Tara, wasn't that interesting? I hope I wasn't too gushing. I think I probably was as well, Cara, and I thought that was a most fascinating interview and we are very lucky that uh, Tuli agreed to talk with us. Tara, we're running out of time. Always lovely to talk to you on the Ark Insider. Have a good week. And you too. And it's fortnightly now, Karen, I think. So we'll be. I will speak to you on the podcast in a fortnight's time. Looking forward to it. Tara, thanks very much indeed. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, in Johannesburg and Tara O'Connor in London. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces a daily chronology of events as well as reports and briefings about the region. You can sign up for these at info at africariskconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now. Now.